The Lean Berets reporting for duty, bringing you physical and health and today cultural education with a noble purpose. Hold on to your ballots and your face mask. You're listening to the Lean Berets radio show at theleanberets.com. We are Avengers of Health. Welcome, Braves. I'm Ron Jones, back with Michael Campy from the Lean Braves, and today our show title is Rationalize, Left, Right, Front, and Center. Welcome back, Michael. Hey, thanks, Ron. We're both good coming to, to back. Yeah, it's good to have you back, and we talk often, and we read even more often, and we're both on the left coast today. And this is, I think, maybe the only show that I've done, Michael, where I haven't really had a clear idea of exactly what we're going to be talking about. Um, well, clear ideas sometimes blind you. Well, that's that's a great place to start, and I think the only thing we really agreed on is that we might disagree and just talk about different things. So mm-hmm. I'm really open to talk about whatever. There's a lot in the news today. It is uh, November uh, 10th, 2020. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things circulating in the media and uh, with social media and mainstream media and alt media. And uh, do you have any starting points? If if you don't, well, I have a, a couple. But There's a couple of things. There was a book by a woman named Dorothy Allison, and it was called Two or Three Things I Know for Sure. And it was subtitled, but I'm not always so sure, and they're not always the same two or three things. <laughs> <laughs> and another one was a quote by Kafka, and he said it is only because of their stupidity that they're able to be so sure of themselves. Hmm. Yeah, And that kind of gets us into the arena of ideologically rigid people who refuse to travel beyond the narrow confines of what they currently know. Kind of reminds me, I remember when I was doing my undergrad and I learned, well, actually was reading English literature because one of my degrees, undergrad, is in English. Most people know me as a PE guy, which I have a PE mm-hmm. degree too, but I actually have a whole degree in English. Anyway, um, and I can't remember... It was Rothschild or who, who who the hell it was, but he was talking about the ignorance of people with bachelor's degrees, you know, who, uh-huh. who think they know everything when they basically, they're barely getting off first base. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that, if, you, if you're really smart, that never really changes a whole lot. You just realize you're, you're a higher level beginner as you go further and deeper, mm-hmm. you know. Well, that's, yeah. tr- that's true. I think, um, you know, you... And and for those of you that don't know about uh, Michael and our friendship, I mean, we go back quite a few years, and he reads extensively. And Michael, I've said this to you personally that you often put things on my radar that aren't there, and uh-huh. that really challenge me to think about what I thought I knew about. And uh, some of my best reading is has come through Michael's pontifications and and urgings at times. <laughs> <laughs> and Socratic method of irritating me until I get off my ass and do something about it. Now, uh, so on that note, I mean, we have we have endless topics to uh, talk about. I mean, Eric Hoffer was one of the people that I latched onto that uh, came from you originally. I never heard of him, which is like mind blowing to me. But you already had the book. I have all his books now. <laughs> Yeah, which was a plus. I said, ever heard of Eric Hoffer? Oh, wait a minute. I have Eric Hoffer. Yeah, I have. I think I, I'm pretty sure I have every single book he wrote at this point. Uh-huh. And I've read about uh, 60% of them. Mm-hmm. What I like about Hoffer is that he obviously is extremely well read and just was a brilliant philosopher and, and a very good writer, too. Um, but a lot of his books aren't very long. You know, they're mm-hmm. pretty short. Uh in comparison to philosophy, uh, and most often I can follow and make sense of it. Um, some of this stuff is over my head, as usual, but, mm-hmm. but I do, I, you know, uh, for those of you that don't know Hoffer, I've been quoting him a lot lately, and he really was an interesting cat. He he didn't uh, wasn't born in California, but he came out here around the Dust Bowl era, and he lived in transient camps and labor camps, and basically was homeless and working in the fields with the blacks and the Mexicans, and uh, picking fruits and vegetables. And he did that like twenty years, and then he went to San Francisco and was a longshoreman, I think twenty five more years. And he was a 
place or minor for a while up in Nevada City where I like to hang out with people like Eric Kenyon. So he, he, he never went to college. He was self-taught, but the guy read just about everything you could read in a public library. And uh, he has a very practical way of looking at stuff, and he was very skeptical of, of uh, university pseudo-intellectuals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there was, um, I don't know, you know, Kafka seems to have covered a lot of the bases. Um, this is going to make me sound a lot smarter than I actually am. In 1912, he wrote a letter to Oswald Spengler, and the gist of the letter was a book must act as an axe for the frozen sea inside of us. Oh, wow, that's pretty heavy. And one of the things I like about you is that you are very open to the idea of taking that axe to whatever frozen sea exists inside you and just chopping the shit out of it. Yeah. Sounds like opening it up and taking a look. Sounds like Malcolm X lately. I got to tell you, the whole Malcolm X thing is pretty intense. I mean, if you're a white dude like me Mm -hmm. and and you're reading Malcolm X, it should scare the shit out of you, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because if if it doesn't, man, you're you're like delusional, you know, and I'm just being brutally honest here. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, most most of those Malcolm X people, posts that I put up, people are afraid to say anything. I think they're polarized. They're afraid to say something if they're white. They're afraid to mm-hmm. say something if they're black. And and uh, I, I just I just think, you know, in our cancel culture, one of the real downsides of that is we can't have uh, a rational discussion and, and a disagreement and even a, a playful argument and mm-hmm. I, I think it's Scotland that kind of has a tradition. I might be wrong, and I have people in Scotland, so they're please correct me. But um, it seems like culturally, I was reading someplace that they have kind of a thing where they they go in the pubs there, and and then they kind of have these verbal jujitsu matches, you know, and mm-hmm. they, and they work their shit out. And I think you had mentioned that uh, Ireland was even a little more punchy than that. <laughs> well, yeah, they'd have the verbal gymnastics or. or- Jiu-jitsu, and then they'd go outside and have physical jujitsu. Yeah, they'd kick the shit out of each other, then go back in and have another drink. Yeah, well, you know that might that might go a long ways today instead of just trying to burn your house down. I mean, you know, at at, at the end of the day, you know, good men meaning you know people, um, mm-hmm. we need to be able to disagree and and you know hopefully live our lives and in the end on our deathbed and dying breath think that we made a freaking difference. You know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know, I think it it boils down to our being able to have these discussions, and especially amongst like what ninety nine percent of the population, mm-hmm. to come to the understanding that a power structure such as it exists here today has no interest whatsoever in your well being. Oh, absolutely! You know, Malcolm X was realizing that, and one of my black friends told me a couple weeks ago, he goes, you know, at, at, and his mother was a high-level person in her area of the East Coast and civil rights in the 60s. And he said that Malcolm, at the end of his life, really started to figure out that it really it really wasn't about um, racism and race as much as it was about power, mm-hmm. just pure power. And that that's what got me going into... Um, uh, Leron Bennett Jr., who Malcolm referenced only once in one of his speeches, so far in my readings of Malcolm, I've only seen him reference this book once, but as I told you a couple days ago, getting ready for the show, how he referenced the book and how he challenged people to go out, find it, gave him the actual bookstore and street where it was in New York, mm-hmm. and told him to read it, or at least challenged him to read it let me know that I, I needed to find that book. And that was a mind-blowing exploration that I just finished yesterday, The Negro Mind. because mm-hmm. uh, And Bennett was quite a social historian and wrote about black history. But, you know, he went into the foundings of the NAACP and Booker T. Washington and, and Du Bois and all and the, the philosophy and the, the real power structure behind the scenes that most people don't know about and don't see. And it's really about... Um, the blacks and whites working together to control the oppressed, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and some of that stuff just doesn't seem to change. And I, I've been popping these comments on about the history of the Democratic Party, and I really pissed a black person off yesterday who just absolutely did not want to hear any of it. Told me to get the fuck mm-hmm. out. 
And, you know, I, I was having a rational conversation, <laughs> and I have historical citations by by black scholars. So, I mean, if you don't want to listen to that, I mean, that's cool. But, you know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to apologize for discussing it, you know. Well, I think we had talked a little bit, too, about the, um, I guess the best name for it is the sellout culture. Yeah. Where a certain group of people will ally themselves with their apparent enemies in order to gain a level of power that they wouldn't otherwise have. And never realizing, as that path was followed, that there would be repercussions Mm -hmm. that the power they were giving you was only as much as they felt they could without you causing a real problem. Oh, that that is that is really a premise of The Negro Mind by uh, Leroy Bennett, Be- mm-hmm. because he talks about um, high-level blacks coming together with high-level whites and basically orchestrating what was acceptable. Mm-hmm. And before there were Negro—and I'm, I'm using the term Negro because it's historically accurate to the times that I'm reading— mm-hmm. um, and and how even the publishers were controlled by this um, um, this higher level echelon, if you will. Mm-hmm. He, he called it the establishment. And um, before there was a quote unquote new Negro movement, it had to be okayed. And in and, and anywhere, there were people groomed. There were Negroes groomed mm-hmm. um, to be with and then within a contained amount of uh, of uh, civil disobedience, if you will, that lack of a better term. And then mm-hmm. it was even cited in Martin Luther King, you know, and we hold him up because of his ideals of nonviolence and love and all this stuff. Malcolm was very critical of that because he said that, you know, it's impossible to fix the problems when the police dogs are biting your leg and they're blowing you over with, you know, fire hoses and you're not even, you're not even, you know, out to do anything wrong. You're just black. And that, that I'm just quoting this. You might not agree with it, but that's him. I'm paraphrasing him. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, there's this alignment where they, and it basically it's about money and power, and uh, the blacks are sold out by the other blacks and the whites that come together and they do their thing, and it just continues mm-hmm. generation after generation. Now, one of the criticisms people have of me now is that, well, the Democratic Party has changed, wrong. Well, I would agree that the Democratic Party has changed, so is the Republican Party, but some things mm-hmm. I don't think change a whole lot. And when mm-hmm. I heard Biden's speech on Sunday, his uh, acceptance speech, if he is in fact the elect, some would argue that, topic for a different show, um, I saw foreshadowing in there of black betrayal, and that pisses some people off when I talk about uh-huh. that. But I can see it because of what I read, and uh, mm-hmm. I'll talk more about that in a well, post. I mean, uh, there was a, you remember that movie Gandhi? Yes. There was one scene in that movie where the uh, one of his supporters in the government, a guy named Nehru, was telling someone that it's costing them a fortune to keep Gandhi poor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can understand that statement, yeah. Yeah, and also the, I mean, the mainstream environmental movement right now, I mean, the, what's called the, um, I believe it's the Nature Conservancy, mm-hmm. sold out to oil. There's actual oil companies drilling on Nature Conservancy land. Mm. Um, Bill McKibben, who's been like the golden child of the environmental and climate change movement for years with his uh, 350.org, has just sold out left, right, and center. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just consistent across the board. People who genuinely have something to say are usually marginalized and or killed. Yeah, as... And Malcolm. people who are willing to accept the boundaries imposed on them by a power structure are usually heralded as the, you know, the, 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 the angels of the new movements. Right. I mean, you look at stuff like the Green New Deal. Yeah. And people get all giddy. Oh, the Green New Deal. We can keep doing the same shit we're doing and not fuck things up quite so fast. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, it's, uh, they they talk about you know that well, this will. Diverge since it's not about anything, anyways. Um, in the uh, the energy uh, world, mm-hmm. it's not about us not having enough energy. It's about us using too much energy. Right. That's more of a root cause issue. I don't know. Yeah, quite, and the the idea that driving an electric car and wearing natural fiber clothes is going to do anything for the planet. 
address the environmental issues is just ludicrous. But these people are all so pleased with themselves. Yeah. <laughs> it, and, it, it, before I digress to my next comment, I, people might be saying, what the hell are they doing? This is like Ron's a physical education guy and Michael Campy's you know, written articles for Breaking Muscle, and you know, we're both fitness Michael people. Michael Campy's just a gadfly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, if if you're a legitimate physical education fitness scholar and researcher, you're going to get into cultural development. And if you're not mm-hmm. there, you better keep looking because you're you're mm-hmm. you're not even close. And so that's why we're talking about culture today because you just can't talk about physical only it, it's it's sound mind sound body it goes back to greece and so that's how we're looping into all this cuz it does it does freaking matter you know especially mm-hmm. when you talk about it overall health involves mental and spiritual health as well so these things are directly connected but on the on the clothing part i had to laugh cuz i don't know how it came up the other day but i i commented to somebody last time i saw rage against the machine cuz they were commenting on you know how how you know radical left they are. I said, yeah, yeah. The last time I saw Rage, um, their T-shirts were made in Mexico by Mexicans making slave labor wages. You know, uh-huh. so they were corporate sellouts as much as anyone. So don't mm-hmm. be, don't be fooled. You know, <laughs> look at the backside right. of the label. You know, mm-hmm. and you might be surprised what you actually see. Yeah. No, Malcolm Malcolm X was uh he was he was you know he actually was uh, against and I posted this today on Facebook. He he talked about non-alignment. He called it uh positive neutrality was the term. And mm-hmm. and he recognized that you know both sides the Democrat and Republican parties are corrupt. It's about the power structure and these people play together behind closed doors and they mm-hmm. end up manipulating everybody else unless you're in the club, you know. So he understood all that, and he was—he wasn't a sellout, from what I gather. And this comes from from some of my black friends, you know, speaking to me uh, candidly as well. And of course, mm-hmm. they killed him, you know, because in the in the Muslim organization where he basically was taught how to get his act together, um, there was some corruption there. And and one of the things that comes out in reading, you know, whether you're reading Malcolm X or Hoffer or other people, is that, you know. The movement, its own success becomes its own demise because you can only mm-hmm. have a movement so long before it becomes industrialized and corporate. And, uh-huh. and now you've got all the money coming in, and with the money you have the power, and then they, they basically lose their radical edge. And so for that reason, I think Malcolm was very skeptical of alignment mm-hmm. uh, with a particular group. You know, I look at if you if you take a fitness perspective, and you try to like kind of ana- analyze this because a lot of people listening to us come from the fitness community. It'd be like Malcolm mm-hmm. X having a brand, a fitness brand or certification, but instead of doing a certification, he just goes out and provides education so you can be the best physical educator, best personal trainer, best exercise science specialist. Mm-hmm. And you figure out how to use that in your community with your people. Bonnie Pruden used to do that. Uh-huh. You know, in the '60s, she did educational three to five day conferences, workshops, you know, um, things like that, retreats. Mm-hmm. Without a certification, you just came in and learned, and you took the information, and you went back, and you became a better person. So, I thought that was interesting, Michael, because today we're like the opposite of what he what he was warning about, which is we become so polarized, like. You're either on the left side and everything on the right is jacked, or you're mm-hmm. on the right side and everybody on the left is a commie. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here in the middle because I've been a nonpartisan registered voter since 1978. I'm, I'm going to be 61 years old this week. I never mm-hmm. bought into that party alignment bullshit, and I was 18 years old and I had it figured out. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> to me, one of the most blatant examples just on a consumerist basis of that kind of idea that um, that people will want to sell you something or co-opt something Yeah, was when they started selling punk rock clothes at pennies. <laughs> <laughs> the things we just, like, we see but we don't think about. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, punks wore torn jeans because they couldn't afford more than one pair. <laughs> you know, they all wore the same leather jacket because they only had just the one. 
you know, they lived in abandoned houses. They played music and they did that kind of thing. And it was, you know, viewed as countercultural or radical. Or and but as soon as that started picking up steam, then uh, the power structure co-opted it. Yeah, and it's a great example of you know the movement, quote unquote, only has a, a very short shelf life. Um, we're both we're both music people too, and I actually wrote a. a a really awesome paper in undergrad on the Sex Pistols. And oh, what the Sex Pistols, the band, the Sex oh, Pistols. Okay. You know, so if you look at the, if you look at Johnny Rotten and the Sex Pistols, and Steve Jones and the people in the band, like that band, it was impossible for that band to stay together very long before they mm-hmm. completely imploded. What's really interesting is, like Malcolm X learned with Black Power, White Power. Underneath the surface, I think the is it Malcolm McLaren that was their manager? I'm, I'm yeah. Okay, well, he was a guy that had these philosophies that went back to the 20s and you know World War One era, and he was orchestrating a lot of this uh, philosophy in their music behind the scenes, and and so it wasn't just a bunch of punks singing about anger. It was actually somewhat orchestrated, which is really mm-hmm. interesting, and most people don't know that. So um, I think our point being for the show is understand, like, at some point you get you get to a certain size and you get adulterated. This is just how it, how it works. I've seen that in numerous fitness organizations. Like, they start up, they get popular, they get trendy, and then they're, like, completely corrupt. And I've been behind the scenes on enough of them to, I won't go into detail here but uh, it was it was ugly enough for me to quit all of them (laughs) because well another good example of that is uh bello biafra from the dead kennedys Mm -hmm. getting beat up by a bunch of punks outside the gilman street club in berkeley (laughs) i mean this guy was like a an icon of the punk scene and a bunch of punks beat him up because he was something or the other he wasn't one of them because he wasn't 18 anymore? Yeah. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I got to see him once, um, and he wasn't with the Dead Kennedys, but he, he was actually promoting a punk concert in Bakersfield uh-huh. uh, at uh, a, a venue that was near what, what's called Pioneer Village there on the, on, the, on the edge of the Kern River that separates Bakersfield from Oildale, and Oildale is like the white ghetto of Bakersfield. Uh-huh. It's where Merle Haggard came from. And uh, it was a crazy-ass show, man. Mm-hmm. But he came out. I mean, he must have been in his mid-40s at the time, and he, he was just, you know, he did a couple numbers. It was awesome. But, uh, yeah, he'd be, a, he'd be a great guy just to sit down and talk to. And I'm sure there's, oh, he, a, there's a lot of things I wouldn't agree with him on, but he's mm-hmm. a guy that can have a conversation, you know? Well, him and, um, him and Chip Conrad are good friends. Are they really? I'd love to—doesn't he live in L.A.? Yeah, no, I think it's still in Berkeley. Oh, okay. I'd actually um, actually like to sit down with him if I can figure out how to arrange that because I think um, I bring some Just books up, up and he up with Chip, see if he can. Yeah, maybe I'll have to talk to Chip about that because he he I, also I, has a show. Oh, does he's he got a YouTube show? Yeah, um, you know that shirt that says WWJD. Yeah, which is what would Jesus do? Right. Well, he wears one of those shirts, but he took a little piece of tape and put it over Jesus and wrote Jello on it. <laughs> And his his YouTube thing is called "What Would Jello Do?" I love it. No, he's he. You know, we need more people like him because he he can. You know, he. I'm sure he reads a lot. Um, you can just tell. You know, and mm-hmm. and he he engages in conversation, and he's not afraid to get out on the edge. And he hasn't changed in terms of him not entertaining different types of thought and mm-hmm. music. So I think. Um, I think that's hard to do. You know, I, I watched a documentary of Miles Davis, the uh, jazz musician, and, you know, he was an interesting mm-hmm. cat. Of course, he had a lot of demons like a lot of artists, but as he went through his life, he was constantly evolving and recreating himself and changing with the times and doing mm-hmm. everything he could not to stagnate. I mean, that's that's a real art. It's hard to do that. It's hard to keep learning. I mean, it's cliche to say you're a lifelong learner. I mean, that floats around in education circles all the time and with schools, uh-huh. but it's a, a hell of a lot harder to pull that off. Oh, yeah. Well, because it means, like, you're finding, like I find on a fairly regular basis, that you're going to be confronted with some pretty uncomfortable truth. And you realize that you don't know what you thought you knew. 
you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, uh, I'd rather, you know, to get back in a rage against the machine. If ignorance is face, if, no, if ignorance is bliss, then wipe the smile off my face. Is Zach De La Rocha's mm-hmm. song, and I can't remember what song it was, but I do like the quote. So <laughs> yeah, there's, there's another great band called. Um, uh, it's it's usually their albums are labeled Carter USM. Mm-hmm. But it stands for Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine. Oh, well, that's that's and, a pretty intense band that, name. They had a um, one song, and the 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 uh, chorus was, "If Jesus is the answer, then what is the question?" Mm. Wow. Which you know yeah. is valid. I mean, right? Sure. People keep saying, "Oh, Jesus is the answer." Well, yeah, but was there a question there? <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the Nietzsche quote I shared the other day. It's about you know. It's not about freedom, it's about freedom for what? That was the paraphrase of it. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. what is the purpose? I remember sitting down, I, this is when I first started doing corporate, and uh, I had a really great physician that worked on me, and, and he was very well-read, and he was, very, mm-hmm. he was very fit, a runner, you know. He's the real deal as a physician, and, and very direct, you know. Mm-hmm. And he's working on me, and he's like, he goes, what's your purpose, Ron? Why are you here? You know, and he gives me this, like, very condensed, intense lecture on, you know, finding yourself as a man and figuring out who the hell you are and what you want to do in your life, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, and, and, you know, it's like, what freedom for what? I mean, mm-hmm. this, this is the cultural health side of the show. Freedom for what? To go buy more Nikes or? Well, that's uh, just, I mean, I think we've talked about Andrew Bassovich, right? I don't. The name isn't ringing with me. Who is he? Well, he wrote a book called The Limits of Power, The okay. End of American Exceptionalism. Oh, I know about American Exceptionalism. Yeah. Yeah, but his yeah his book was The Limits of Power, and he talked about the concept of freedom okay. and how we were able to justify wars by changing the definition of freedom from true freedom to the freedom to buy things. Mm-hmm. And once you have the freedom to buy things representing freedom, then all of a sudden you can justify a war against people who would deny you that freedom. Interesting. When was that? When was a book written? Um, I think it was uh, sometime in the early two thousands, maybe. Okay. Excellent book. Well, so much a war is about money. I mean, sometimes I think it's about just power and control, but so often mm-hmm. it's about. It's about money, and, and that's that's an interesting area to explore the the uh, justifications for that. You know, we were talking the other day as we planned the show, which we plan to unplan the show, but we were talking about uh, <laughs> morality and good, good versus good being good is good all the time, and and mm-hmm. so we're, we're getting into like I'm in a philosophy group led by a rabbi, and I'm not Jewish, but he he's brilliant, and you know we got into this in one of our meetings pre-COVID when we could actually sit in the same room and you know, see each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he helped me to understand that good is always good. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not, uh, you can't take good on a timeline and say, well, it, it's good for us now, but it wasn't good for the Nazis. Or it's good for mm-hmm. the white people, but it's not good for the black people. It doesn't work that way. Uh-huh. Go- good is good is good all the time. Mm-hmm. And there's very few people in history that are able to pull that off at that level. You know, mm-hmm. um, Bennett, Bennett talked about some, uh, some of the, the whites that actually were authentic um, in helping the, the Negro situation. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a very, very, very short list of white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's harsh to read as a white person because basically they're saying you know they were willing to die for the cause and it you know triggers a lot of fear mm-hmm. of anarchy and civil unrest and and outright revolution and it's frightening you know so I I'm just admitting my own weakness here <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's it's difficult to just state that because it just is. You know? Well, it is. It was um, uh, a long time ago when they just started implementing the belt law. There was a commercial they did, and it was a you know a little kid wanting to get in the car with his dad, and his dad says, "Well, buckle up your seatbelt." And the little kid goes, "Well, 
I don't want to. It's uncomfortable and it hurts. Mm-hmm. And the dad says, okay, well, just this once. And the kid's killed in a car accident on the way to the store. Mm. Um, but I think our, our minds are like that. I don't want to think. It's uncomfortable and it hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, we get stuck in that arena. Um, you're one of the few people I know that doesn't get stuck in that arena, that you're willing to say, okay, yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it hurts. Let's mm-hmm. do it. Well, I probably do sometimes, but I, I think as I get older and wiser, I'm, I'm better at spotting my own um, flaws there and jolting myself out of it a bit. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I've been teasing out this idea out of history, and it, your conversation just now brought it up to mind. I, I was working on it this morning, and it, I guess— I didn't start with Biden's speech Sunday, but it, I could see things foreshadowed in his speech. And, and it's a concept of breaking, not breaking mm-hmm. as in breaking a window, but breaking as in breaking the car, putting on the brakes, deceleration. Uh-huh. And that's a concept that I see over and over and over um, in the black power, white power uh, alliance, where the powers that be come together and they orchestrate a certain amount of breaking. Uh-huh. And and that's that's what I saw in Biden's speech. He When he talked about temperature, mm-hmm. bringing the temperature down, it's really an analogy for breaking. And, uh-huh. and then I started thinking rationally. And, you know, I haven't been like this huge Trump fan. I've been critical of him from the get-go about his delivery, his dialogue, his his lack of intellectualism um, mm-hmm. in a positive sense, his lack of presidential decorum. Um, but I have stopped short of screaming expletives at him in social media, just like I did with Obama when I was displeased with Obama or Bush when I was displeased with Bush or, or uh-huh. Clinton or whatever. Okay, so anyway. Just real quickly, I saw a T-shirt the other day that— yeah. um, it had a picture of George Bush on it. Yeah. And underneath it, it said, miss me yet? <laughs> God, is it? Jeez. Oh, my God. That, well, that's actually pretty fun. I mean, yeah, in a I sad kind of a way. So anyway, back to the breaking thing, and I started thinking about, mm-hmm. okay, well, I can see this foreshadowed. Now, a lot of people might not understand that, but when you read what I read, I can, I can see it. I can mm-hmm. feel it. I can smell it. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking about Trump. It's like, okay, well— Trump is an accelerator. He accelerates things. He doesn't break at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in, a, in a lot of ways. That's just kind of a generalization. But, and then I started thinking, well, Malcolm X was an accelerator. And so mm-hmm. here's my thought. If, if you're looking at root cause solutions, I think there's a benefit to accelerating through into the heat and dealing with the bullshit. And mm-hmm. if you keep breaking and you keep bringing the temperature down, um, that might not have a totally positive effect. So uh, my question is, is because I, I noticed, reported, that a lot of people um, flipped and voted for Trump that were previously voting Democratic. Mm-hmm. So do... Do more blacks now think that Trump Trump is trying to accelerate things into just weeding through the bullcrap and dealing with it, or is it a matter of everybody wants to go back to the comfort zone the way it was before, normalcy, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, let's put the brakes on, let's bring the temperature down, and then, as Malcolm said in 1964, you know— <laughs> We're just going to keep going around the issues and never really dealing with the root causes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a guy, a, a writer named Will McDonough. Uh huh. Um, and his work was more oriented towards environmental, um, sustainable type of building projects. But one of his quotes, which I which I think fits really well in here, is if you're going a hundred miles an hour towards a cliff. Mm-hmm. Slowing down to 25 is not going to help. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, and, I get that, yeah. And that's kind of like the braking concept. It's, you know, if we're going 100 miles an hour towards a cliff, 
Right. If we slow down a little, nothing's going to happen. It's just going to keep going, and it's going to go over the cliff eventually. Well, that's what Lee Roan <coughs> Bennett wrote in The Negro Mind. And basically, that's what he was predicting as well. Well, here's mm-hmm. the thing, and here's we started the show with this like scenario from last night where this black guy got pissed off and told me to get the F out and then kicked me off his page. So that is an example of slamming on the brakes. Okay, well, how, mm-hmm. how many problems are you going to solve by slamming on the brakes? Mm-hmm. You know, because I think, at least from my rational mind here, at least this morning, rational, is that Mm -hmm. we need to have some disagreements and be able to talk things out and have somewhat of a decorum here. And um, Mm -hmm. if you just cancel everybody immediately, which seems to be the the zeitgeist of the day, then Mm -hmm. how how can we work our shit out, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I was thinking about the—because the, Hoffer was very critical of a lot of tantrums on college campuses because he said it was a place for children instead of adults in the 60s. Uh-huh. And he's got a point. And now we have these safe rooms on campus, and this is going to be a controversial statement. But we have these safe rooms on campus where these people can go where they're totally protected. And, and it's my understanding that the whites can't go there. Okay? Uh-huh. These are for people of color. I would propose that we have an unsafe room as well. And there's certain mm-hmm. rules of engagement. One of the rules is there's no physical fighting. And mm-hmm. the other rule should be there's no, like, screaming and yelling in people's faces with a three-word vocabulary. But it mm-hmm. should be a place, as Malcolm X would have entertained, where, yeah, I can handle you. I can handle your opinion. And let's have a mm-hmm. debate, and, and let's get it all out on the table and, and see what happens. And I'm not going to yeah. apologize for my opinions, and you don't have to apologize for yours either, because I'm man enough to handle it. I'd like to see more of that, mm-hmm. and 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 walk away kind of like the the pub scenario we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but get some stuff out, because one thing I've learned in my life, Michael, the more you try to oppress and suppress, things just ferment like a pressure cooker, mm-hmm. and they end up erupting. Um, a more recent example is the sexual health issues with millennial men who who don't know how to communicate with women in a way that facilitates, you know, getting a date or having a relationship because of, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the hell they've been doing instead of developing a relationship with a significant other, um, even if it's not a woman. But I'm talking about like a male-female relationship right now. And, th- mm-hmm. and then there's this erupting or this... Uh, growing problem of of rapes and violence and and assault and things like this because all these things build up and then they just explode Mm -hmm. and i think it's very dangerous to quote-unquote like cancel flirting and Mm -hmm. and normal like interaction because you you just subvert all this stuff and it just it just gets out of control eventually it's like we're going to go to the cliff anyway it's just going to take us a little longer it's going to be just as violent when we fall off the cliff Oh, yeah. You know? Well, there was one, um, and this is, as far as I know, it's a pretty little-known fact Mm -hmm. that birth rates amongst humans, and I'm only marginally sure of this, so it can't be quoted. It would have to be researched. But the birth rates amongst humans is three males for every female. Hmm. And the reason for that is that males are inherently weaker and die more frequently in birth. Hmm. Interesting. So once we started keeping everybody alive, then all of a sudden you have this skewed ratio. Oh, I, I'm following you now. Yeah, it's out of balance. It's a yin-yang yeah. thing. Yeah. And then you get, you know, like three guys for every girl, and then that accelerates and keeps going, and then pretty soon there's this, you know, surplus of males and uh, scarcity of females. This is a great topic. It gets into sexual health research that I've done and we've talked about that too but when you get when you get an overwhelming amount of male energy it typically involves violence and death mm-hmm. <laughs> and, <it's>, and <laughs> not necessarily in that order yeah and it's um it's extremely important to have the female perspective not mm-hmm. just in a sexual relationship or the actual act of having sex but also in your interactions and politics and things like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I would argue that you know, we we do need more um, 
female politicians. We do need more of a female voice because I don't think the males have typically done the greatest job, you know? Mm-hmm. No, they haven't. And, you know, historically it was kind of interesting because if you really get back in history that um, a lot of the women um, were actually fighting side by side in wars with the men, and they were fierce. They were very mm-hmm. able to handle themselves. And, you know, that we don't, we don't have that culture necessarily here as much. Um, I saw that at the playground once. Really? <laughs> at the playground with my daughter, and there was me and one other guy there, mm-hmm. and the rest were women. And there was some, you know, a marginally sketchy-looking guy walking by the playground. Yeah. And he stopped by the fence for a second, and within, a, it wasn't even a heartbeat. All of the women there were like right on this guy. What the hell are you doing here? What do you think you're doing? Maybe you should move along. And the two guys, me and the other guy, were just kind of looking at each other. Should we say something? <laughs> I mean, they were fucking on that shit, and they, <laughs> you know, these are the lionesses, and they are not going to let you mess with their kids. I used to work with a guy uh, when I worked at the health department, and and we did, uh, uh, we had basically he was kind of like a scared straight guy. I would take him into juvenile hall and high risk youth groups, and he would talk to them mm-hmm. about getting their shit together. He was awesome. He was a he was a third degree black belt and he had spent a career in corrections. And mm-hmm. so he had worked in, you know, solitary confinement. He did cell extractions, which is like when the prisoners don't want to come out of the cell, they have to send the real badasses in to make force them out. And he was the guy they uh-huh. sent in first. So he was one of those guys. Um but he said the worst prisons to work in were the female prisons. He said he refused to work in a female prison because he said the the women are absolutely vicious. He goes, the men will just come up and stab you, and then they'll walk away, and they're over it. But the women, man, he said they would deface each other in their faces and slap, and they'd try to just—they were just vicious and cruel mm-hmm. and extremely vindictive. So there is that side of it, you know. Yeah. There was—I um, mean— this has, in the past, got me accused of being sexist, but in a more natural environment, mm-hmm. there was a group purpose. It also got me accused of being a communist. <laughs> well, Everyone, hey, we're we're doing the left, right, front, and center show now, right? So you can, yeah, you can go left and be commie for a minute. Yeah, so, I mean, the the common purpose was the survival of the group. Mm-hmm. And everyone within the group had a job that contributed to that common purpose. Right. And it was divided according to their abilities. Mm-hmm. Men were stronger physically and able to go out and hunt, so they would do that. Women had other jobs. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like they were assigning the jobs based on what's more demeaning or what's more uh, what's more acceptable or because because the hunters would go out and they would give away the meat they'd give it to everybody and they would eat last hmm. mm-hmm. and they would downplay the importance of what they had just done yeah because they understood that everybody who did everything was important everybody had a job in a tribal community and if if you didn't contribute to the the betterment or the the survival of the tribe, you're out of the inner circle, which is you're out in the forest dealing with the lions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so everybody contributed, and it, it worked because it, there was a common purpose. Right. And I think once we lost that common purpose, because mm-hmm. you've, you've talked a lot about World War II, I mean, that, that gave the entire country a common purpose. Yes, this is this is a and this comes up often, at least once a week with someone that I talk to, whether it's social media or in personal mm-hmm. dealings, is the problem America is having is we don't. It was called a noble purpose in the day, mm-hmm. and it's preservation of nation. If you put that on a bumper sticker definition, but we don't have a unified noble purpose today. Mm-hmm. If you ask people, and we go back to the physician who gave me the in face like convo years ago at the beginning of my career, like, what is your purpose? Mm-hmm. And how would people answer that? I mean, a, a lot of it comes down to what you talked about is commodity in your purchasing power mm-hmm. and the, the brands that you wear or display. And, you know, at a certain point, you realize through your reading and hopefully your life that it's not just about the money. Mm-hmm. It's nice to have food, shelter, and 
and extra things. And I think, you know, Hoffer's one of these guys that turned me on my ear mm-hmm. about glorifying nature versus the urban environment. And he, he pointed out over and over in many of his passages that man will work much harder for the extras beyond just food and survival. It's the extra stuff that drives us to be exceptional in America. It mm-hmm. is the fast car. It is the boat. It is the clothes or whatever. I mean, he, mm-hmm. it was just a very different point of view. Um, so that's part of the equation, but I, I don't think it, it, it should define a person's life, although a lot of people live that way. Mm-hmm. It's all about the money, and it's all about the power. Of course, nobody takes any of that with you. You can't do it. it yeah. Well, there's, I mean, there's, People, since we're both fitness guys, and anybody who's listening to this who's a fitness guy will know who Dan John is. Oh, yeah. He's uh, and this is a, pretty high kind up of there. a workaround point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, somebody asked him, well, you know, how should I eat? And Dan John said, eat like an adult. <laughs> and I would extend that. So, well, how should I behave? Behave like an adult. Right. Behave like you grew up and learned some things. Yeah, Hoffer, that's why, you know, he's, he, he had a radical thought. He, he projected that what we should do in America is make kids go to work for three years after high school in an adult world for full wages. At uh-huh. the end of the three years, then they had the opportunity to go to the university as true adults and actually learn something. At the mm-hmm. end of four years, they could have their exam and they could, you know, prove what they know. And the, the mm-hmm. problem was is that we were sending too many children to universities. And he yeah. said he knew that by the amount of dogs at Berkeley, because he was a research professor at Berkeley, even though he never went to college. He, they hired him for a period in mm-hmm. the 60s. And I'm like, what the hell does a dog have to do with college? And he explained that kids have dogs. Mm-hmm. And he knew by the amount of dogs that there were a lot of children on campus, of course, adults have dogs too. But I, I just thought it was an interesting way to explain it. And uh-huh. You know, he went on to the whole tantrum thing, and and that kind of mindset has continued and developed to the point today where I would argue that so many of the people protesting and rioting are college mm-hmm. graduates that I would say don't know much of anything. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'd be I'd be curious to know what they could actually discuss rationally and what they've actually read. On, on not mm-hmm. just one point of view, um, and I sh- I'm and I'm speaking as an English teacher now. They mm-hmm. definitely need some work with their vocabulary. There's a place. Yeah. There's a place for expletives and accelerating uh, tone and intonation and volume mm-hmm. changes and all that. That's the art of uh, speaking. Uh-huh. But if you're just screaming three words for hours, you might want to uh-huh. work on that. Well, I was, I, I mean, uh, I heard this quote by Einstein a long time ago, and he said, profanity is the effort of a feeble mind to express itself forcibly. Mm. And then when he was questioned as to, well, how then should a feeble, or how then should one express oneself forcibly, he mm. just smiled. Mm. Because there's no need to express yourself forcibly. There's a need to express yourself rationally. Wow, that's a very controlled way of doing it. That's interesting. Yeah, although I'm rather fond of expletives myself. I've always uh, yeah, I think another story I read when I was little was this um this little kid and he lived in a house and Grandpa came over every now and again and um, all he did was swear. Mm-hmm. And he said when Grandfather came over, he would swear magnificently. And I thought, damn, that's what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's an elevated use of expletives. Yeah, I, wanna, I don't want to raise it to an art form. <laughs> well, if you're going to do it, do it right. Oh yeah. <laughs> I I think you know it's the show's left, right, front, and center. I, I might be kind of center on that one. I I mean I, I suppose it has its place, but you mm-hmm. know it's like good music. If you look at VU levels and recording, you know one of the issues mm-hmm. with current recordings the last you know, 20 years or so is they're recorded too hot. 
And if you look at audiology and, and the science of sound, mm-hmm. it's very fatiguing uh, to one's ears to have like all the levels across the spectrum running so hot. And mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, uh, conversation is that way. It, it, if you have a peak on your level meter, that, that gets your attention. But it's, uh-huh. and you're more of a musician than me, uh, for sure. But I've read and, and learned that it, music is the space in between notes. Yeah. And, and so what I'm That's... seeing with the riots and the protests, there's no space anymore. And how can uh-huh. you even think, right? Would you, have we talked, there's a, a jazz piano player named Mike Garson. I don't know uh, him. Yeah. Well, he played on the on some day. He was like the keyboard player for David Bowie for a long time. Oh, okay. And I took lessons from him in Los Angeles. Fascinating. And he talked about the space between notes. He goes, "What's going to make this work is the space, not the notes." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this Buddhist nun that I studied with for a while talked about the same thing. Uh, she said one day in art class, they were all taken out to a field sat down in front of a tree and everybody just groaned and said, oh, no, do we have to draw another tree? And the teacher said, no. What I want you to draw is not the tree, but the space between the branches and the leaves. Mm, Wow, different perspective. Yeah, and the idea was that the space allows the tree to exist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the tree can exist independent, or the space can exist independently of the tree, but the tree needs the space in order to define it. The proverbial room to grow. Yeah. That's interesting. I, When I teach English students, and I'm helping them with creative writing, and I'm not, I'm not as good technically as I am creatively. I'll just mm-hmm. admit that. Um, but one of the things I work with them on is ellipsis and dash, and, and uh-huh. to create not only a, a physical pause in the reading of the words, but also a visual space mm-hmm. in the writing. For people that don't know uh, grammar, it's those are three dots, an ellipsis. You'll sometimes see that it creates a, a kind of a pause, but it's a different type of a pause than a dash. You know, visually it's different. There's more open mm-hmm. space with the ellipsis. So it, anyway, we won't get too far into English literature and sentence structure. <laughs> Or grammar. <laughs> but the, the the idea is to create some space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would argue that even in the Ireland pubs where people were going back and forth, that the space might have been at the end of the night after they beat each other up a little bit, they went back and had a toast and quieted down for a minute before they went home, and then they did it again the next day. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's a good well, way to end a show, is just hopefully we'll encourage people to have some space— um, mm-hmm. I think people get too busy being busy, and they don't even know why they're busy sometimes. And having a little mm-hmm. space to think is is pretty important, especially right now. The space to think, and also understanding your own responses to stimulus. Like if you respond emotionally, mm-hmm. you're probably not using facts to support your position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is either you can make a rational, logical argument based on facts, or you can't. Right. There's no in-between ground there. So if you're responding in an emotional manner, you're probably defending a belief system. Yeah, and it's easy to do. You know, it's easy to fall into that, myself included. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been a this. If you haven't had, if you haven't read a book this year, I. I I think you've really <laughs> blown a, a, an amazing opportunity because 2020, if nothing else, has been a year of space. It's been a year where we were forced into leisure, and that's a, like technically a term in history is forced leisure. Um, and it's not the optimal kind of leisure, one could argue, but we did have, have extra time. Um, even if you continue to work remotely, your commute was negated to nothing. And for me, mm-hmm. that's like an hour each way, you know? So... Um, that's two hours extra a day to do something productive. Hopefully it was more, right. more than just waste my time. Um, and I did more reading this year than any other year of my life. I really did try to capitalize on what I feel is a golden opportunity mm-hmm. to get something out of this year that's been so bad and so turbulent and to be able to look back and say that was the year. That was the year um, of 
of in a way slowing down and decelerating, but only to, you know, reaccelerate into the root cause fixes. So we'll see what happens in 2021. But well, it was it was. Uh, I looked at it as a, a one of the most precious opportunities we've been offered as a species in 50 years. Mm-hmm. So you can just stop and look at things. You can look at the way you've been spending your life. You can look at the way you've been spending your time. You can look at the relationships. You can look at everything and start maybe opening up a little bit and understanding a little bit more thoroughly what you've been doing. Unfortunately, that did not happen. You know what I thought about when you said that was uh, my front porch, and I remodeled the front porch last year and did a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. on it. Kind of make a little. It was it was a nice little space. It was a, a safe space. Yeah, and it was a nice space for me to go, or that other people in my family. I encouraged them to go out there as well and sit, read, mm-hmm. drink, whatever. Um, but the hummingbirds, because we've got a, a a drought tolerant front yard with drought tolerant plants that flower. You know, year round, and we've got some lavender bushes out there, and the hummingbirds—they're there all the time. Um, I've spent a lot of time in between my books and coffee and whatever, just watching them drop in and buzz out, and and even at night they're out there, and it's just—I've mm-hmm. had the space to do that, and and of course, anytime you're observant like that, you're—you know—it's a John Muir kind of a thing. You're learning something, and mm-hmm. you know they don't. <laughs> They never change their behaviors, you know. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it, nothing phased them. That you know, they were out there in the smoke, and they, they were out there in the riots, you know, around the country and mm-hmm. in, in the elections. And they don't give a damn about you know, the the voting fraud <laughs> allegations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a peacefulness to it, even though there's also they're very territorial. I noticed, you know, if one mm-hmm. drops in, that the other one doesn't think should be there there's an immediate response it's extremely aggressive <laughs> mm-hmm. so they well they're also they're um they're somewhat single-minded yeah and at least from what i've seen you may have seen more is that they, they're not trying to be anything other than a hummingbird right right i mean you probably never saw one sailing over your house looking for rats like a hawk that's true it never really tried to be anything other than what it was. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we have a problem with we always want to be something else. We're not satisfied with what we are. And we're sure not as good at single focus, you know, because we're so multitasked now. And that, you know, that that's the advantage of reading a whole book and not just a, a quick blog post or something, but reading a book cover to cover. And sometimes I get into a book, Michael, where it's like, oh, my God, this book is like really dry. <laughs> And I realized, like, you know, this isn't the greatest read, but I just force myself, usually, not all the time, but I force mm-hmm. myself to finish the damn book anyway, just as a discipline, just to get to mm-hmm. the other side as a goal. And uh, and I might not go back to it ever again, but at least I did it. Here's something yeah. about the hummingbird, though. I've been working in the yard a lot this year, too, and on the other side of the house, I was out there, you know, pruning and stuff, and I looked up, and there was a hummingbird sitting on a branch, and it was like inches in front of my face. And as soon as I saw it, I just froze. And we're sitting there looking at each other. Now, you know, hummingbirds don't often just sit where you yeah. can see them. I mean, literally, this bird was like 12 inches in front of my face. And I, we probably looked at each other for about five minutes. And that has happened more than once. Like, I'll be out there, and, and I almost feel like the hummingbird knows that I'm not a threat. And it's mm-hmm. able to sit there and I'll kind of cock my head and look at it different ways, and it'll cock its head and kind of look at me different ways. And it, we have this kind of little relationship building for two mm-hmm. or three different settings. So, um, you know, if you're in a hurry and you're just trying to check things off the list, you don't have space for things like that. And I think mm-hmm. at the end of your life, those things do matter. Well, thanks for the engaging conversation. Just as a note to anyone who claims they don't have time to read, I uh, would refer them to J.K. Rowling's comment when someone said, I don't have time to read. She said, well, do you go to the bathroom? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Answer, yes. Do you eat breakfast? Yes. Then you have time to read. It's so important. And, um, you know, as a teacher, 
to me, reading literacy is where it's at. And as a country, when I look around at the education that the children today in 2020 are missing, especially elementary education, I think it's critical that we have a huge national push for reading literacy in 2021. I haven't heard anyone talking about that, but I really feel mm-hmm. like the community needs to come together and really help the kids get on top of reading. Because if they're not reading, they're just not going to make it. You have to have reading skills. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of different topics to read and different authors and black authors and white authors and Asian authors. I mean, there's a lot There's a lot of content out there, but the, the benefit of reading cannot be underestimated. And I hope if nothing else, that the people that kind of follow us and are somewhat amused by our ramblings will realize that um, we're able to have a different level of conversation because of the things we read that are not only left and not only right, but also front and center is in very important. Mm-hmm. And just remember that Ron and I are available for lecture tours. Um, Absolutely. For a price. That's right. We're worth the money, <laughs> by God. If, if you want to <laughs> set us up with a a reading for your afternoon coffee club, by all means, get in touch. <laughs> yes, and we'll do think tanks as well. Because we, we have, yeah, oh, yeah. Cause we have the real stuff, man. We have the real stuff. All right, Michael, thanks a lot. We'll catch up soon. All right, take care. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. You've been listening to the Lean Braze radio show at theleanbraze.com. Music today by Van Halen. Rock and peace, Eddie. We love you. Until next time, keep moving well to think well and be strong to be useful.